Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm speaking with Mark Torres, the author of a new children's book called Good Guy Jake. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Lee. I'm glad to be here. Now, it's been a while since we talked to anyone who had written a children's book. Could you tell us why this book and what made you decide to write for an audience of children? Oh, that's a great question. By practice, I'm a labor and employment attorney. I represent a Teamsters uh, union here in New York City. So by and large, the gist of the book is what I do for a living, represent employees. And I was approached by the publisher, uh, Tim Sheard of Hardball Press, with the idea of collaborating on the story. And the, the idea was, uh, you know, typically most of the documents and learning materials for labor are just manuals and documents, kind of straightforward teaching methods. We wanted to go beyond that. We wanted to go to reach to younger audiences to teach our children of what we do as part of the labor movement and how we do it. One of the things I really enjoyed about this is growing up, any book that I read that talked about labor issues, it was you know, more historical fiction. So, you know, I would read about the Lowell girls going on strike, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, or, you know, child labor or things like that. But there really wasn't any book that showed what unions do for people now, what labor issues come up for people now. So how did you come up with the idea for the story to kind of tell kids in an approachable, accessible way, not about stuff that happened 100 years ago, but what the labor movement's actually doing now? Sure. And, and as I said, I collaborated with Tim. We wanted to come up with a, through enchanting storytelling, if you will, a way to to teach children what we do as opposed to, like you said, the dry manual stuff and the historical documents in a way that they could relate to. And, and I'll share with you, when I went to read the book to my daughter's fifth grade class, I read the book and they all liked it. And at the end, I asked one question. I said, do you think Jake would have gotten his job back if he wasn't part of a union? And they all raised their hands and said no. Um, so the message is resonating with children at you know different stages and different locations and even different ages. And again, the idea was to tell it in a story that's you know, captivating as opposed to just a manual or historical document. And for our listeners who have not yet seen this book, the story starts off with Jake, who's a member of the United Street Cleaners Union. He's a sanitation worker. And it's his habit to, when he sees a toy that's been discarded along his route that he thinks to himself, no, I couldn't fix that up. He would set it aside, and then in his free time, he would repair it, and then he would donate it to the local children's group, and that way the children would have toys. And that ends up presenting a problem for him because he's turned in, essentially, and he loses his job. So that's the background story. And um, one of the things I also enjoyed about this was that I would have told you you could not explain arbitration to children in an approachable picture book. And I think you did a great job with that, with walking children through what's what's an actual process. And it didn't come across as dry. It came across as very realistic to the point that I wondered if this was a true story. So this is not a true story, but does this ring true with some other experiences that you've seen in your work? Sure. In, in fact, I will say that that rule is actually in existence, certainly in New York City. The street cleaners are not allowed to remove something. It's because it belongs to the city once it's put to the curb. So technically, it is a rule violation, which could lead to discipline. And, you know, it was important to kind of relay that truth through the story. And, and admittedly, it was a challenge to write for children. It's the first time I've kind of simplified it in terms that still catch the point 
but uh, make it simpler that they can understand. An arbitrator would be a judge, and an arbitration you know, forum would be a court, uh, and a grievance would be a complaint, things that they can relate to. And I, I kind of relied on my own children that helped me as, as I was writing the manuscript to say, oh, does this work? Does this sound too out of bounds? And, and they're nine and 10 year olds, so they kind of gave uh, critical feedback to help me make it, you know, to create it in a way that can still keep the message, but simplify it enough. And your connection to unions is not just as a general counsel for the local, do you say 810? Yes. The local 810? 810, local 810. It's not just as the general counsel. You were a member. Could you talk a little bit about your own career path? Sure. Um, way back in 1990, I actually was employed at New York University. I was a refrigeration engineer and a member of Local 810, who still represents, uh, this union still represents those workers today. Uh, kind of just working there, uh, working my way through the ropes and eventually became a shop steward. I you know, wanted to kind of get that familiarity and, and that desire to represent my coworkers in workplace matters. Uh, and eventually went on, you know, to, took advantage of a tuition assistance at the, at the university, was able to get an undergrad at New York University in 2003, and went on to law school in the evenings because I had to work full time. I was still working at NYU and going to law school as impossible as that sounds. And in 2008, I, was, I received my law degree from Fordham Law, and I left. And I briefly worked at a stint at a large labor and employment law firm, Pascal Rose, before the opportunity to join Local 810 became available and I didn't hesitate a moment and I joined it. And since 2009, I've been their general counsel and uh, proudly still represent and serve the members of Local 810 amongst many other shops. And this is not the first book you've written. Can you talk a little bit about your other book that was, I believe, came out in December 2015? Yes, that's correct. That book is a murder mystery. It's entitled The Stirring in the North Fork. And, you know, where did that come from? I, I really can't tell you. I was just, I, I love what I do. I love legal writing. I love my profession. But one thing about legal writing is very formulaic. You stick to the rules, you stick to it. When I started to come up with the concept of writing a book, I actually collaborated with my wife on this to just come up with a story. I didn't think of it as I'm going to set out to become an author and write a book. I just wanted to work on a story and it developed into a book. Um, it, it was, it took surprisingly short amount of time to write. It was about five months to complete that book. I self-published it through Amazon. I marketed the book primarily through social media. One tidbit I'll add on that is that as readers were reviewing the book and enjoying it, I would ask them to send pictures, you know, post pictures of the book wherever you may be. And within a year, it was pictured on every continent on Earth, culminating with December of 2016. I got a picture of a reader in Antarctica on an ice shelf <laughs> holding the book, reading it with a magnificent background. It was jaw-dropping. It was a wonderful moment, and it was a great way to kind of market the book and get it out there. So in doing this work... Obviously, like this is a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort both to write the book and then to self-publish and to promote. Did it feel like a second job or did it feel like more of a break from the normal routine legal work that you do for the Teamsters? Probably more the latter. It definitely, till to this day, has never felt like a second job. I, Particularly with the first one, it was self-published. Everything was on me. I had no expectations of anything other than getting out my work to whoever would want to read it. It's received really incredible reviews. And it's really all about the story. It was, you know, as you kind of work through, and I worked through with my wife and just collaborating on the story to create something, you know, a, a work of art that will stand the test of time. One of the greatest things I can recall about this book is that it's in the, a lot of the public library systems in our in our area. And to me, that's wonderful legacy where when I'm long gone, it'll still be in the system. And it never until this day has felt like work. It's always been a true labor of love. And I think that there are plenty of listeners out there, lawyers or otherwise, who have a book in their head or even on paper, but don't quite know what to do next. What is the advice you would give to 
other lawyers who are thinking about writing a book or who have written a book about what they should be doing or focusing on? Sure. I, I would say certainly don't fight it. If, if there's a story out there that you have within you, don't fight it and don't prevent it from coming out. You know, you're denying yourself in the world of something that could be really prized to many people, certainly yourself. Writing it is the first critical component. Write at your leisure, write when you can. Uh, I remember, you know, scribbling notes wherever I went and even calling my office to leave voice messages of important passages I wanted to enter into the book before forgetting or losing them. And at that point, you know, perhaps the biggest self-investment you could do is get an editor to assist in the editing process. And then, you know, places like Amazon offer self-publishing because certainly the publishing world is, is a different animal there entirely, from my view, profit-driven. So it's hard to get noticed unless you're really reputable Then probably going to touch what you have. So, you know, don't let it distract from what you want to do. But if you want to put it out, first, if you want to write it, write it. And then if you want to put it out, put it out. Don't deny yourself and the world from putting out your work. So circling back to Good Guy Jake, um, there are two elements I'd love to talk to you about. One is the illustration, because I think that's so important for any children's book, that there be good pictures. And the other one is your choice to publish this both in English and in Spanish. On the same page, for listeners, there is the English text and right underneath it, the Spanish text. So whichever language is your primary language at home, you know, you could be reading it to your children in that language. Could you talk a little bit about the process after you've written this story of seeing a children's book come together with those elements. Well, certainly. And, you know, Good Guy Jake was published, again, through Hardball Press. And the benefit of that, as I explained what the, you know, the benefits of self-publishing are, the benefits of publishing are relying upon and using resources that are out there. Tim was able to work with this artist to create, as you said, wonderful, vivid images that capture the storyline. And it was also Tim's suggestion, based on a lot of his works, to print the book bilingual, so that a lot of the Latino population, uh, which make up a large part of many unions, would be able to enjoy as well. You know, the idea was if the unions were going to buy these books and give them out to their constituents, if many of them were Latino or maybe had struggled with English, why deter them from that? You know, created an opportunity for both, if not more, to get the book out to them and share the message. And so, so far, you know, the book's only been out a couple of months, but have you seen most sales in that sort of category that unions are buying in order to have literature that their members can give to their kids? Are you seeing, you know, more outside sales? What's been your experience in these first few months that the book's been available? Well, the book's been received well, uh, primarily from the unions and the marketing and the networking that I've been doing have been through the unions and a few social justice groups. And the orders can vary. One union can buy a thousand copies, another can buy 10 copies. And my objective is understanding that because obviously different union locals have different varying resources based on their membership is to get it out, get it out there to whether through the unions and then further promote the cause. And, and when I started this process, you know, I was writing a book, I was putting it out, I was excited through the networking is only when I really realized it, that we really have a stronger message than I first initially thought, you know, labor has been pounded over the years. We're getting hammered. The numbers are dwindling. And, you know, why not create a message and go back, go back to our youth, our very young children, and tell them. I, I've talked to many business agents and people in this industry who lament how their children really don't get what they do. And, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's the not communicating enough or they're just so darn busy, or, but it's, it's important for those people and all the professionals in this industry and the labor movement to really take a pause and say, look, we do a tremendous amount of work. And as I explained to my daughter's class, 
there's always a profession. You have firemen, you have teachers, you have factory workers. All these professions have workers, and those workers need workplace rights. And that's what unions do. They secure those, they safeguard those, and they enhance those workplace rights. And that's what we do. That's the essence of the labor movement. And that's why this book took on a bigger message than initially anticipated and thoroughly thrilled with it. And Mark, there was actually an perhaps unexpected benefit to this being bilingual. Can you talk a little bit about your recent donation? Yes, I'm proud to say that I've partnered with publisher Tim Sheard of Hardball Press to donate 200 copies of Good Guy Jake to the United Federation of Teachers Union in Puerto Rico. As you know, the island was ravished by the Hurricane Maria in recent months, and many of the schools reported to have lost so many books. We worked together, we packaged the books and donated them, and we're proud to say they've just started to have been received on the island for distribution throughout the local schools. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am and humbled by that. Our books are going to get out there to help those, obviously, in need. And when you've talked to your own children and the classes that you visited, what part of the story seems to really register with kids where they realize, oh, I get it, I get why this was important that someone was fighting for Jake's rights. What resonated with them? What part of the message grabbed them first? And I'm thinking here of the people, like you said, who want to talk about this to their kids or to other people that they come across. What was registering? Well, initially, it was the overall you know, act of leniency, where the arbitrator was able to understand that technically a rule was broken. Technically, this person was deserving of discipline, was termination enough. But in the industry, that's really the way it is, where arbitrators decide based on, on many factors, on the, the merits of a case, and whether there's, you know, the discipline is appropriate to the merits of those cases. But also, you know, initially, when Jake goes to his union representative, and, and she admittedly said, it doesn't look like a strong case, that was correct. A lot of times unions have to bring cases that are not strong, others that are strong. Yet, because someone's job's on the line, because of an act that really was down, it was a good-natured act, that leniency was deserved and that the union took that within the lawful rights to an arbitration to contest this termination and ultimately prevail. So what do you think is your next project? Are you working on a follow-up to your murder mystery? Are you thinking about doing more stories in the good guy Jake line, what do you what do you think is your next project? Well, if you if you ask my wife, I should have written three or four more books already. She's my <laughs> greatest uh, supporter. I think there's a little of both. I think the reception of Good Guy Jake and the the positive message that uh, to me opens up a lot of eyes to incorporate what I do for a living into stories that can help not only foster labor movement but also teach along the way. Uh, certainly, I have two projects in mind for stirring in the North Fork, and if I may, I'll just kind of just go back to the story in the North Fork. It was a murder mystery set out in the North Fork of Long Island in 1972. And for almost 40 years, the murder went unsolved until an out-of-work attorney, who admittedly at the time was somewhat autobiographical, <laughs> had stumbled upon the case and went back to the North Fork area to retrace the steps. It's a very visual-oriented book because my family and I vacationed out there in the lovely area for better than 15 years. And it was easy, you know, it's the kind of place where people go to get inspired to read a book. I got inspired to write one. So I certainly want to follow up with that. The lovely protagonist, Savoy Graves, who's a never-ending quest of justice. I would like to carry on with that protagonist into other stories, as well as historical fiction type novels I'm considering. Okay, great. And then if people want to find out more about either of your books or reach you on any sort of social media or website, how could they do that? Are there any sites that they should go to? Sure. Well, certainly both books are available on Amazon. 
as well as Good Guy Jake is available on Hardball Press. But in social media, I'm available on Twitter at M Torres Author One, as well as on Facebook and LinkedIn. And there's plenty of information. And really, what's great about it is if you hashtag a stirring in the North Fork, several pictures are going to come up with that book in, in amazing places all over the world, from Kenya to India to New York City and Paris and all over. And uh, I've been blessed with, with positive readership uh, and an interesting way to market the book and keep it fun. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Law Library, and thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.